the following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Only by your mercy can we come to you. We deserve your judgment, yet you have called us by name. And so we sing your praise for calling out your church before the foundation of the world, knowing that on this day, in this time, sitting in these seats, we'd be praising your name. Thank you, Father, for your providential work that brought us to this place today. Work that we can't even conceive of that got us to this spot. Thank you for our minds that at least attempts to understand that more and more each day. To understand you more and more each day. And as we struggle in that understanding, Father, we know that it is only by your Spirit that our hearts are open, our ears are open, our minds are open to your precious word. Teach us to proclaim that word with boldness to a lost and dying world. Teach us, Father, that when we go through from this place that, that, that we might stand firm on that word which is truth in a world filled with crisis. Religious crisis, racial crisis, problems with crime, problems with the killing of babies, problems with stealing other people's property, problems at home. The struggles of raising children, Lord, we realize that all of those things are the result of sin. And so even now, at this very moment, knowing the sins in our own lives, Father, we confess them to you and ask your forgiveness. Thank you for the gift of your son, for saving our souls for giving us life and a reason to live and for the gift of hope. Our prayer today, Lord, that you might fill our hearts with the truth of your word as our pastor proclaims that word this day. Fill our hearts with your love. Fill our hearts To be the people of God that you've called us to be. So that we might change this world for your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. As you're doing that... um, motioning to me in the back back there that we need one more approved nursery worker to, uh, to, to help us out in the nursery this morning. If you uh, are screened and approved and could jump over there and help, that would be a huge blessing. All right, John chapter 13, verses 31 through 38 is our focus this morning. We pick up in the middle of, of a narrative in the upper room. This is uh, the night before Jesus' arrest and trials and crucifixion. He's gathered in the upper room with his disciples, and they are sharing a final Passover meal together. And in the midst of that meal, we saw last week, uh, Jesus reveals to the, to the group that there's a betrayer among them. And uh, that... Uh, that uh, 
event begins to play out there in the context of that meal, although it's not clear to everyone around the table what's going on. Only Jesus and John, the author of this gospel, and Judas seem to be the ones who know exactly what's happening. But Jesus has just revealed that it's Judas who's the betrayer. And uh, just prior to verse 31, uh, we see that, uh, that Judas leaves the table. He gets up and he leaves the table. And uh, when he's gone, he's left the room. The, the disciples are left not knowing exactly what has happened. And then Jesus immediately changes the subject from betrayal to something else. We'll pick up in verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. The word of the Lord. Some interesting dynamics that are taking place around this table. Um, we've, we've watched as Judas, has, this event has sort of unfolded, and we looked really in depth last week at, uh, at, at, this, at this unfolding of, of, of Jesus laying out who his betrayer was going to be. And the way we, we looked at that last week was looking at it through the lens of the darkness of sin and sort of the vileness of sin, what sin does to the human heart. And, and, and we looked kind of deeply into that. It was really pretty a, a sickening sor- sermon, truthfully, maybe on more than one level, but it, it, was, it was a miserable topic to look into. We saw how, how in Judas' life he was an example for the blinding nature of sin, how sin blinds us, how, it, how it, it blinds us to reality, it blinds us to truth, it dulls us to spiritual the truth and the spiritual reality, and it causes us to believe lies, things that are not true. And, it, and it's described as walking in darkness because sin really it corrupts our whole thinking process and it turns our lives sort of upside down and our thought process upside down and backwards. It closes our minds, it, it dulls our senses, it convinces us we're right when we're absolutely wrong. And we saw that in the life of Judas, how that was playing out. He was blind. Jesus had just knelt down and washed his feet and and Judas totally was blind to the message. He totally didn't get it. He didn't see it. He wasn't moved by it at all as the others were. It's because that's what sin does to us. And we saw this in and also it's kind of a betrayal. It, it, the, whole, this whole, the whole idea of sin in the life of a believer or of anybody for that reason is a rebellion against God. It's a rebellion against his plan. It's a rebellion against what he did at the cross. It's a, it's a, a rebellion and a betrayal of his sacrifice and of his work in our lives and of his example and that's what sin is at heart. It's betraying the Lord. Whether it's the sin of ultimately selling him out to be crucified, or it's some simple sin that we harbor in our life. And in any sense that we harbor sin, we're in some way, shape, or form betraying the Lord. That's what sin is, and that's what it does. We saw that sin is covert in its nature. It hides under the surface of our lives, and, and it, can, it can find root in our lives, and it can, it can begin to grow and bloom and blossom inside of us, and nobody around us have any clue what's going on. Right? We saw that with Judas. This guy was a vile, sick, sin-saturated sort of a man, and he existed within the twelve apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, the closest men to the Lord, and nobody's had any clue that this was going on in this man's heart. No one saw it. No one suspected him. No one had any idea what was going on. Even after this little encounter takes place and Judas gets up and he leaves the table, they still don't know what's going on with Judas. They still haven't put the pieces together that he's the betrayer. 
the Lord was just talking about. And that's because sin thrives in the darkness where nobody can see it, and it grows there. And it can grow, and it can saturate our lives, and we can still operate within the, the context of the church. We can still operate within the context of believers, and nobody have any clue that what's going on inside of our heart is an utter and complete rebellion against the Lord. That's what sin does. It hides in the darkness. It, 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 it hides from exposure. And it grows there. Jesus told a parable about that, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he describes that in the kingdom of God, in his kingdom, there's going to be a mixture of people. Speaking of the kingdom in that context, the church, the visible church, there's always going to be those in the mix who are the real deal, who truly belong to him. And there's always going to be those who are sown throughout, who look on the surface just like everybody else, who act on the surface just like everybody else, who speak the same language, do the same sort of religious rituals, but inside their hearts they are vile and sick and not folks who have given them their hearts to the Lord, who are not redeemed. And Jesus makes the, gives the parable just to explain to his disciples that you cannot tell these things on the surface. And sometimes it's hidden so dark and so deeply that it won't even be sorted out until the very end where God himself sorts it out. Because sin is covert by nature. We sort of ran out of time at the end last week, and I didn't give you the last part, the idea that sin is progressive in its nature as well, that it's progressive. We touched on it, the idea that it doesn't start out as huge. It starts out as little small, tiny steps that ultimately lead us down a path that takes us to a place where we never dreamed we would be. And I'm sure that there was a time early on in Judas's life where he never thought about, never dreamed that he would be the one who would betray the Lord Jesus Christ. He never, never thought that he would end up selling out the Son of God to be crucified. And yet that's exactly where he ended up. He didn't wake up one morning and say, this is what I want to do. He just allowed sin to creep into his heart and to take root step by step. A little greed here, a little lie there, a little selfishness here, a little pride, uh, overt pride here. And step by step by step, his heart becomes darkened, his eyes become, his spiritual eyes become blinded. The next thing you know, he's in a place where he never dreamed he would be. And that's what sin does when it's harbored in our lives. It takes us places. Sin doesn't sit stagnant in your heart. It doesn't sit stagnant in my heart. The enemy doesn't, he isn't content when we sin once, right? He gets us to that point and then he tempts us to the next step. And then he tempts us to the next step. And then he tempts us to the next step until one day we wake up and we look at our lives and we look back and we say, Dear Lord, how did I get here? I never thought I would end up in this place. Never thought I'd get there, but that's what sin does. It takes us progressively where we never imagined we could go or any ever imagined that we would end up. And that's what happened to Judas until we get to verse 26 where John tells us after, G, after uh, Jesus has already said to, to John in this private conversation, when John's asked him, who's this betrayer you're talking about? He said, the one who, who dips his morsel uh, at the same time I do that's, and, and the, that I give him the bread to, that's the one who's the betrayer. And he dips his, his bread into the, the, the paste that was part of the, the Passover meal there and he hands it to Judas, and Judas knows all of a sudden he's exposed. And John knows now that Judas is exposed. And in verse 27, John tells us this, that after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. What a dreadful statement to be said about you, right? Satan entered into him. Now, we've already been told by John that Satan had put it into Judas' heart to betray the Lord. But now it's ramped up to a whole new level, right? Judas is progressively, over time, given himself to sin, step by step by step. And he's continually opened himself up to more and more and more of it. And it's progressed to the very end of the line for Judas, to the very point where he's so opened himself that Satan has now complete control of his life. You could say at this point, Judas is now beyond repentance. He's consumed by the enemy of his soul. And upon that, Activity. Jesus looks to him and he says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. The, the, you know, Jesus has been showing this man friendship all along. He's been expressing his love to him all along. But now something decisive has happened, right? Satan has taken over this man. And Jesus understands the, the, he understands the deal. And so he says to him, what you have to do, do it quickly. That's Jesus' way of saying, all right, Judas, get on with it. We both know the score. We both know the deal. Get out of here and get with it. And by the way, it wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. And at that moment, Judas got up and he left. And he shows us that it's a progressive thing. Satan takes full control of this man's life. 
It's a sad and dreadful sort of a thing. And it's a reminder to us that we best not coddle sin. We best not play around with it in our lives. We, better, we best not indulge in it. We best not excuse ourselves that it's just a little small deal because it's not a small deal. A small deal becomes a big deal real quick. That's why in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and following, Paul writes, we're to put to death what is earthly inside of you. What is our attitude to be toward the sin in our life? We're to want to kill it. We're to, we're, we're to, we're to be, we're to be uh, uh, murderous toward the sin in our life. We want to put it to death. That's the opposite of playing with it. That's the opposite of coddling it. It's putting it to death. Sexual immorality. Give some examples. Passion, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry. You know, all of these little things that we, we tend to overlook and we tend to hide and excuse. He says, don't hide it, don't excuse it. Kill it in your life. Do whatever it takes to kill it in your life. Because if you don't, it will kill you. Somebody important said that. I can't remember who. <laughs> Some reformer. And then John tells us it was night. Judas leaves and it was night. It was night. For Judas, it was night forever. He would never see the light of day, that man. Goes out, sells out the Lord, and he hangs himself. And for him, all of eternity is spent in utter outer darkness. Never to see the light of Christ again. Sad. Sad and dreadful. But now that Judas is out of the picture, the Lord turns back to the other 11. He turns to them and he changes the subject. He starkly contrasts what he's about to say with what he's just said. He's just dealt with the darkness of sin in the human heart. The evil, utter, vile darkness that's going on in the life of this man, Judas. This dark-hearted disciple. He leaves, and now the tenor of the whole room changes now that the betrayer is gone, and Jesus can get down to business with the eleven who love him. And he can get down to business with the, with the short time he has left with them to prepare them for what is to come. He doesn't have much time left. And when you don't have much time left, you deal with the things that matter the most, right? If you think about that, if you know that your time is limited, you know you're going to die before, before the next day, you're going to carefully choose the words you say, Right? You're going to be filtering through your mind. Not, you're not going to fill your time with a bunch of junk. You're going to fill your time in your mouth with the words that most matter to the people that most matter. And that's what Jesus does. He turns toward them, and he turns from, from the topic of betrayal to what he perceives, I think, to be the most important topic for them to consider leading up to his death. It's the topic of love. The topic of love. If there's anything that's the opposite of what Judas was doing, it's love. If there's anything opposite to a sin-drenched life, it's a, it's a life that's drenched in love. Because sin, at its heart, is ultimately, ultimately rooted back into one thing. Selfishness, right? Think about that with me for a minute. Every sin that you and I commit ultimately roots back some way, somehow, to selfishness, to self-love. To self-love, right? I lie, and why do I lie? Because the truth either makes me look bad, and I don't want to look bad, selfishly. I'm looking out for myself. I lie because I I want other people to think of me in a way that I really am not. That's selfishness. I take things. I steal from uh, someone else. Why do people steal from somebody else? Because they want for themselves what somebody else has. That's what? That's selfish. People commit sexual sin, adulterous sin, fornication kinds of sin. People indulge in sinful sexual relationships and behaviors. Why? Because they want to gratify what? Themselves, their own sexual pleasure, their own sexual desires. It's selfishness that drives that. Why do people murder? Why do people kill? Because they have selfish desires that they want to appease and to fulfill. All of our sin, really at the heart of it, it roots back to a, a love of self. We want something, and the sinful avenue is the way that we go about getting it. It's self-love, sin is. On the other hand, what Jesus is about to talk about is there's this thing called love. It's a godly sort of a love that's the exact opposite of that. It is completely and utterly selfless. If the sin we indulge in is self is selfish, the love we indulge in, Jesus is going to tell us, is selfless. It's the opposite of our sinful behaviors, is love. Sin at its heart is loving self. Love at its heart is others-oriented. We'll see that this morning. And Jesus wants to talk to them about love. And so in verse 34 and 35, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another 
just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. We're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about this issue this morning. The Bible is full. It's really full of teachings about how we are to act in respect to God, right? The Bible has a lot to say to us about how we're to live and how we're to behave and how we're to act in respect to our God. But the Bible is also full of teachings on how we're to react and act towards one another. We sometimes uh, unknowingly adopt the impression that as long as we're right with God, it doesn't really matter how we relate to other people. But the thing that really matters is how we relate to God, the vertical aspect of our relationship. And the the way we act with other people is somehow secondary or less important than that. The reality is we can't be right with God unless we're right with other people. That's what the Bible teaches. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, Jesus says, Therefore, if you're offering your... If if you're offering your gift at the altar, that is, if you're giving your your gift to the Lord, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, something's not right between you and a brother, you leave your gift there in front of the altar, and you go and be reconciled to your brother. Then you come back and offer your gift. That's the opposite of saying that if this is right, then that doesn't matter. What What is he saying there? He's saying, if this isn't right, don't bother with this until you get that right. It's the opposite that's true, isn't it? Christianity is not purely a mental faith. It's not purely about what we believe. It's a a faith that results in very specific action if it's true, and if it doesn't result in very specific practical actions that relate to how we deal with other people, then the reality is it isn't true faith at the beginning. That's what James says when he says in James 2.17, in the same way faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's dead faith. If we don't act on it, it's not real. That's what James's argument is. So we could say then that Christianity is both defined and confirmed by the actions that it produces. No, we're not right if we're just right with God. We have to be right with God and other people. These things play together. They're not set against one another. When we think in those terms and we begin to think about this subject, it can help but escape our, our attention that one of the greatest plagues that's been upon the Christian church historically has been the way that Christian people or people who claim to be Christians treat one another. Fair enough? The way Christians treat other people, and particularly the way they treat one another, has not historically been a great testimony of the Christian church to a world that's watching. And this isn't just in our day. It goes all the way back. Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, and he's writing to the church at Rome. And at that church, they're arguing over minor issues, and they're judging one another. And so Paul has to write to them and say this. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. In other words, quit arguing with one another, quit judging one another, and start loving one another. That's what he's saying. He writes to the church at Corinth, where in that particular church, there's sexual immorality. They're suing one another. They're divorcing each other. They're competing with each other. They're refusing to forgive one another. All of those are examples of a lack of love for each other. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 16, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. He has to tell them to love one another. The church at Galatia. They're fighting and they're arguing as well. And so in Galatians 5, Paul writes, The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. Or you'll be destroyed by each other. To a church in Ephesus where they're lying to one another and sinning in their anger against one another, where they're stealing and speaking evil of others, he writes to them, In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up that may benefit those who listen. Love each other. Well, I wish I could say that that was only a problem in the church in Rome and the church in Corinth and the church in Galatia and the church in Ephesus, right? But, it was the, we, but at this point in church history, we've conquered that issue. We've dealt with that problem. And uh, in the church of Jesus Christ in 2015, um, that's not an issue anymore. 
I can't say that, can I? I wish I could say, okay, that may be a problem in Rome or Corinth or Galatia or Ephesus. It may even be a problem in the greater world in 2015. Maybe even in American culture in general. Maybe even in a bunch of Southerners in the Bible Belt state of South Carolina. But it's not a problem at Grace on the Ashley Church. We've got it, we've got it mastered. This idea of love for other people. But you know I can't say that. And I know I can't say that. It's not a slight against you. It does say something about the nature within us and some of the sins that we are naturally drawn to and easily succumb to. And so we need to look at that this morning. Because I'll tell you this. I will tell you this, and this is not an understatement. Some of the meanest, nastiest, most unkind, spiteful, rude, hateful people I've ever encountered in my entire life have been in churches and people who claim to be Christians. And that's no understatement. It's true. And that's just not my experience. I'm sure you probably had similar experiences based on your reaction to the statement I just made. You've probably had some similar experiences in your life. And what's worse than the fact that we have to experience that and that sometimes we're the perpetrators, what's worse than that is that there are literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who are sitting in their home this morning rather than being in a place of worship Uh, because they will never step foot inside of a, a church, a Christian church, because of how they've been treated by other people who claim to be Christian. They've watched churches argue and fight. They've been cheated by a Christian in business. I'll never forget a guy who, uh, who I know who owns his own business and has been in business for many years. He said to me one time, he said, I've learned one thing in business. He said, you better watch out for the people who come and tell you up front that they're a Christian. You better watch out for them. Better watch out for them. And this guy was a new believer, by the way, who told me that. So he has an experience from being a lost man dealing with people who claim to be Christian. And that was his evaluation. You better watch out for the people who advertise their Christianity, who tell you they're a Christian. You better watch out for them. The testimony of the Christian church has been ruined in the world in many ways because Christians can't figure out how to treat each other and can't figure out how to treat other people. And sadly, we're often not known for our love, but we're known for the opposite, our lack of love for one another and for the world. And so Jesus knows this is going to be an issue, so he deals with it here in these last days. He knows that these disciples are going to be, have to be people who love one another. That if this church is going to launch after he's crucified and buried and resurrected, if the, if the church of Jesus Christ is going to have any opportunity to flourish in the world, it's going to have to be because it models love. And he's going to go on to explain to us that that's the primary apologetic that the Christian church has for the world, a visible love for each other. It's the primary thing that's going to speak to the truth of the gospel to the world that's watching, the way Christians love each other. And so these guys have to, they have to learn how to love. They have to learn how to love one another. And if we've seen anything in John's gospel, we, 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 we've seen that these guys are already struggling with this, right? They're already jockeying for who's going to be on top. They're arguing with each other about who's the most important. That's not loving each other. That's competing with one another. And Jesus knows they have much to learn. And he knows we have much to learn about this. And so in his last hours, he talks about love. And he instructs love. And he commands love. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. If we're going to think about this rightly, we need to get a, a grasp for what is, a, what is the biblical nature of love. What does love look like from a biblical perspective? Because it stands in complete contrast to the, the, what the world tells us love looks like. When you listen to the world around us, when you listen to popular culture, when you watch movies that kind of, uh, kind of um, are, are popular in our day, when you watch what's going on on the television, you read books and so forth, and you, you think, how does the world talk about love? What does the world give us a picture of love being? And you find that largely the world tends to picture and define for us love as being defined by how it feels or how it makes us feel. It, it, it centers around feelings, Centers around feelings. So all those great love movies, right? Chick flicks, they're called. I like them too. I'm no chick. But, but a good love story, you know, it moves your emotions, right? You cry at the end or there's some touching moment in there that, that touches your emotion, makes you feel something. And, and, and that's not that that's evil because certainly there are feelings that are attached to love. 
But in the world's eyes, that's what love is. It's, it's, it's a feeling that makes us feel something. It's defined by how we feel in any given moment. You know what the problem is with that definition? My feelings are affected by so many things. And I never can maintain the same feelings over the long haul, right? Is that true for you? How you feel? Does it go up and down? Husbands and wives, let me ask you a question. Let me just deal with you for a minute here. How you feel about one another, is it constant every day? Is it pure uh, wedded marital bliss every day? Do you wake up in the morning? There are some liars in the room. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I understand you're trying to keep the peace. You don't want to admit it right now. It's not true, right? Feelings ebb and they flow. They move and they change with the circumstances and the days and the, the things that are going on. That's why in our world, love comes and goes, and it's disposable, because it's defined by how we feel, and how we feel changes, and as long as we feel good about each other, we're in love, and the moment we don't feel good about each other, we must not be in love anymore, so we need to go find somebody else that we can be in love with, and so we marry, and we divorce, and we remarry, and we divorce, and it just becomes all about how we feel. It's all feelings-based. We fall in it, we fall out of it like a hole in the ground. That's not what the Bible pictures love as. The Bible surprisingly says very little to us about how love feels. The Bible says very little to us about how love feels. It it, it rarely even addresses that issue. The Bible defines for us love, and it gives us a a very comprehensive picture of love, but it does not define love by how it feels or how it makes us feel or how it makes anyone else feel. It defines love by what love does, by actions, by what love does. And it's not primarily a feeling. When we look at the, what the Word of God tells us about love, it, tells, it defines love by what it does. For God so loved the world that He what? That He gave. He did something. He acted. He gave. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You'll do something. It's an action. Biblical love is not a feeling, it's an act of the will in obedience to the Lord. It's a, it's, a, it's a choice to act in a certain way. That's what biblical love is. It's a choice to act in a certain way towards somebody else in obedience to the Lord. That's what it is. It's born out of a motivation to glorify God. And it's a decision to act, not a way to feel. The, the most... The most Prominent, if I were to ask you what's the most prominent passage in the Bible that says to us something about love, what would you say? If you got married, it was probably in your wedding, your wedding ceremony. 1 Corinthians 13, did you say? You, yes, you did say that. That's what I heard. 1 Corinthians, that's what Pastor Frank said. He was right. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is what? It's patient and it's kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. And it's a definition, a comprehensive definition of love. Does it say anything at all about how love feels? No. It says everything to do about how love acts. It tells us that love is patient, right? Love is patient. Even when we feel like forcefully expressing ourselves, loving somebody is being patient with them. Love is patient. It, 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 it bears pain and it bears trial and it bears difficulty without complaints. It's patient. When it's provoked, it doesn't instantly respond with anger. It's patient. That's what love is. That's what love does. Love is kind. Even when we don't want to be kind. Even when someone's unkind to us. Even when everything within us would rather be, would rather be something other than kind. What does love look like? It looks like being kind. When I want to retaliate physically, but instead... I show love. That's what love is. That's what love does. It's sympathetic. It's considerate. It's gentle. It's agreeable. It's not jealous, right? Love is not jealous. It's the activity of not being jealous. It's being unjealous, if that's a word. Especially when we're aware that other people are being noticed more than we are. 
What does love look like in that environment? It looks like not being jealous. It looks like not exalting ourselves to shine a light brighter on us than it's shining on someone else. It works for the good and the welfare of somebody else rather than trying to steal their glory because it's not jealous. Love doesn't brag. Even when we want to tell the world about all of our great accomplishments, it doesn't flaunt itself. It doesn't, it doesn't behave in ways that are self-glorifying. That's what love is. That's what love is. Love doesn't brag. It's not arrogant. Even when we think we're right and the other person is wrong, which when I'm in an argument is almost every time that's what I think. But love isn't arrogant. It doesn't assert itself. It isn't overbearing. It does not act unbecomingly. That means it's not, it's not boastful. It's not rude. It's not overbearing. It's appropriate. It's fitting to the situation. It doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't fulfill its own desires. It doesn't seek to do that. It doesn't ask for its own way. It seeks to serve others and not to be served. That's what love is. That's what it is to be loving. You see that in 1 Corinthians 13? It's not easily provoked. Even when other people try to provoke you, what does love look like? Love is not being easily provoked when somebody's trying to provoke you. That's not a feeling. That's an action. It's an action that goes against all of our feelings at the moment. It's not easily provoked. It's not aroused or incited to big outbursts of anger. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. What does it look like to be loving? It means having a short memory when other people offend us or hurt us or harm us. It doesn't hold a grudge. It's quick to forgive. It doesn't return evil for evil. That's what it is to, to love someone. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It rejoices when the, when the truth wins out. It bears all things. That means it's tolerant. It endures with other people. It's patient with other people, even people who are difficult to deal with. That's what love looks like. Love believes all things. It believes the best about the other person. It hopes all things. Even when nothing appears to be going right, it, it, it's a, there's a, a visible, tangible hope. That's what love looks like. That's what love is. It endures all things. Endures all things. When you think you can't endure that person one more second, love endures. It sticks with it. It doesn't quit on somebody. It doesn't give up. Love never fails. Love, it never fails. It doesn't crumble under pressure. That's the idea. It doesn't, it doesn't collapse when things are hard. Love hangs in there. None of that has anything to do with feelings. You saw that, right? But that's what love is. That's the way the, the sentence is constructed. Love is these things. Love is a, a, the, 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 the choice in obedience to the Lord to live out and to display and to act toward other people in these sorts of ways, regardless of how we feel at any given second along the way. Much of the time it feels great to live like that, but an awful lot of the time it feels horrible to do that. And it goes against everything that we feel. But that's what love is. It is all those things. And all of those things show up in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, in the way that we act, right? Our attitudes, our actions, and our speech display whether we're patient or not. Whether we are easily provoked or we're not. Whether we bear all things or we don't, right? Somebody watches what you do, and they listen to what you say, <clears throat> and they observe the attitudes that you hold in your life, and they can quickly tell whether you're a loving person in this sense of the word love, right? The way our attitudes show up. A loving attitudes marked by humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. That's why Ephesians chapter two, Paul, Paul writes, excuse me, chapter four writes, be completely humble and gentle, be patient. Doing what? Bearing with one another in, in what? Say it with me. Love. Yeah, you're feeling it, aren't you? I'm feeling it as I'm saying it. Bearing with one another in love. An attitude of love as we deal with one another. An attitude of love considers others better than yourself. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility 
What? Say this part with me. Consider others better than yourself. What does love look like when I'm navigating with somebody else? It looks like me considering them better than myself. The opposite of Judas, the exact representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? That's loving in attitude. What about actions? I mean, it begins with a loving attitude, and then it flows into our actions. Do our actions display that we're patient and kind and all of those things? Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then as, we've always ha- as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're to do what? How are we to treat everybody in general? Love looks like doing good to them, but it looks particularly like doing good to whom? Those who are of the household of faith. It's the same thing that Jesus is saying when he says love one another. Love one another. Those who are a part of the family of God. Romans chapter 12, Paul says it this way in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. How about if that was the competition that we were all in every Sunday when we gathered and every time we gathered with people who were part of the body of Christ. If that was our competition, we were competing with each other in this category. Who can do the best and outdoing the other person and showing honor. That's another way of loving other people. What does love look like in our actions? In a real practical sense. It looks like being quick to apologize when we're wrong. It looks like being quick to forgive when someone has wronged us. That's what love looks like. That's what love does. What about our speech? Love shows up in the way we talk. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good, as is good, for building up. This fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's what love does. It speaks words that build other people up. That's, That's loving. That's loving them. That's loving somebody. When I'm speaking to you, the words that come out of my mouth, if they build you up, then I'm loving you. That's what love looks like. If it's corrupting talk that's coming out of my mouth, that is not loving. It's the opposite. What does love look like in my speech? Do not grumble against one another. When I come at you and I grumble against you or I grumble against you to someone else, that is not love. It's the opposite of love, right? In speech. What does love look like in our speech? We tell the truth to each other. We don't lie. We don't speak evil against one another. Francis Schaeffer wrote a a wonderful exposition of this text. And I was tempted to just read his to you this morning because it was better than what you're getting. But I'm going to at least give you some snippets from it. In, In regard to this, he says this. I've observed one thing among true Christians and their differences in many countries. What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians, that is what leaves a bitterness that can last for 20, 30, or 40 years, is not the issue of doctrine or belief, which caused the differences in the first place. Invariably, it's a lack of love. And the bitter things that were said by true Christians in the midst of differences, these stick in the mind like glue. And after time passes and the differences between the Christians or the groups appear less than they did before, there are still those bitter, bitter things we said in the midst of what we thought was a good and sufficient objective discussion. It is these things, these unloving attitudes and words that cause the stench the world can smell in the church of Jesus Christ among those who are truly Christian. It's biting and it's true, isn't it? Biting and it's true. A lack of love shows up in our words and our actions. And that lack of love sticks and it harms and it hurts and it does damage way, 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 way beyond whatever it's said or done. Far into the future. Now see, biblical love is not like that. Biblical love is, an, is, a, is a choice to act in a certain way towards other people because I love And want to obey the Lord. And because I want to glorify and honor him with my life. And because I want to be a blessing to those around me. That's what love looks like. And it looks like that 1 Corinthians 13 passage. And those things show up in the way we speak and think and talk. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 13. When he says, the new commandment I give to you, love one another. 
well, what's, what's new about this commandment, we would ask when we read that, right? Because it doesn't seem like a new commandment. It seems like something he's, that's been said before. And it has been said before. It's been said before all the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 of the Old Testament. What does the Bible tell us? You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. I mean, we had that commandment all the way back in Leviticus. So why is Jesus saying now, I'm giving you a new commandment to love one another? Got that one figured out yet? What's new about it? Well, what's new about it, it's underlined and bolded on the screen there in case you didn't notice. He adds something to it. He adds a dimension to love that we don't get in the Old Testament. Love one another. Say this with me. Just as I have loved you. You see, they've had a living, visible example of love, walking and talking and breathing in front of them. All of the things that God said about love in the Old Testament root back to his nature, and all of those things were in bold, colorful, living display in the person of Jesus Christ. And they have now not just heard it, but they have seen it, and they've observed it, and they've experienced it in relationship with him. They now know what it is to love one another because they've watched how he's related to them and to everyone else around him. So this added side, just as I've loved you, makes all the difference in the world. It's a whole new dimension of love that previously is unknown. Just as I have loved you, love one another. And I want to tell you, that's hard, hard, hard when we start to think about what does that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says that we're to love one another just as he has loved us? In order for us to understand that, we have to understand how exactly has he loved us. Are you ready? You got your seatbelt on? Toes off the ground, just in case? How has Christ loved us? What does godly love look like? First John chapter 4, verse 9 through 11. Let me just give you this. You can put your feet down on the floor for a second. Because the same John that writes John chapter 13 writes this a little bit later. In fact, all of 1 John could be said in some sense to be an expansion and an explanation of this one statement of Jesus in John chapter 13. Because if you read 1 John, it's all about love and the practical outplaying of what it means to love someone else as Christ has loved us. One little snippet from that is this in verse 9 of chapter 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to do what? Love one another. How does, what, is, what does the love of Christ look like? You see, the love of Jesus is the love of God because Jesus is God incarnate. And God is love, therefore Jesus is love. Everything he says and does is loving and it defines love. So what does that look like? Godly love, the kind of love we're to show toward one another, is the kind of love that initiates. It initiates. It doesn't respond. It's an initiating kind of love, not a responsive kind of love. It's not that, God, it's not that we first loved God. It's what? He first loved us. God didn't sit in heaven and wait to see how we were going to perform, did he? And then in response to our, our, our performance, say, okay, now I'll initiate a loving relationship with you. No, he is loving, and his love initiates towards us. It doesn't wait on how we're going to perform. It doesn't wait on how we're going to respond. It reaches out. It doesn't sit back and evaluate and then respond. It's an initiating kind of love. His love was not a response to how we were treating him. It wasn't even dependent upon how we were treating him. His love was expressed toward us regardless of how we might respond to it. Did you hear that? In fact, it doesn't need anything in return. He doesn't say, I love you because you love me, does he? He says, no, in spite of who you are or what you might do or how you might respond, I choose to initiate a loving relationship with you. I'm going to be loving toward you regardless of what you do or how you respond. Godly love, it initiates. In fact, it loves first before the other has a chance to even respond. Let me give you another characteristic of it. It's not based on the worth of the object. It's not 
based on the worth of the object. Chapter 5, verse 8 of Romans, he lays out something real clear for us. God shows us his what? His love for us. How? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love is not rooted in the worth of the object. Christ did not love you because you were worthy of his love. He loved you. He loved you in the sense that while you were very unlovable, he sent his son to die for you. Jesus loved you in that while you were completely unlovable, he chose to die for you. His love was not rooted in your worth or your value or what you had earned. In fact, his love is, is ex- expressed and displayed toward you and toward me, not because of what we've earned, but in spite of who we are. His love is defined by his action. God sent his son. The son chose to die for us, not because of who we are or what we've done, but in spite of it. To love my neighbor just as Christ has loved me? That means I'm to love them regardless of how they perform and not because they deserve it or not because they've earned it. In spite of the fact that they haven't, I love them. Is this getting hard for you yet? It's getting hard for me. What else does Christ's love look like? Does God's love look like? It's unconditional. It's unconditional. It's not based on how we treat him. It's not based on whether or not we offend him, abuse him, or sin against him. Pastor Frank preached a couple weeks ago, early on in this chapter, where he talks about Jesus' love for his people. You remember what he said about what Jesus said, what kind of a love he had? It's a love that loves them until when? He loved them to the end. He loves them right to the end. He loves you right to the end. He loves me right to the end. And along the way between now and then, well, I'm going to give him a lot of reasons not to love me. But his love is unconditional. It's not conditioned upon how often I offend, abuse, or sin against him. His love is sacrificial and it's self-giving. Do you realize loving you and loving me cost God something? It cost Jesus something. There was a cost involved in him loving us. It cost Jesus something incredible, didn't it? I mean, we're watching the Gospel of John, and we're about to see him get arrested, brutally beaten. We're about to see him get nailed to a Roman cross where his blood is going to pour out, and he's literally going to die for us. That cost him something. If there's ever an example of the love of Jesus, the cross is the picture of the love of Jesus, more complete than any other picture we could ever see, where the Son of God, the perfect, utterly righteous Son of God, gives his life for unrighteous sinners who are in rebellion against him. That is what love does. It's the biggest, most miraculous, most hard-to-understand display of what love does that there has ever been in the experience of humanity. It costs Jesus something to love you. It costs God something to love you. The Father gave his only begotten Son. He gave. He gave up something. As an expression of his love. So when Jesus says to us, love your neighbor, love one another, just as I have loved you. He's saying to us that it's going to cost us something to do that. It's going to cost me something to love you. It's going to cost you something to love me. In the context of a, of a husband and wife, it's going to cost you something to love that other person. It's not going to be easy, and it's not going to always be pleasurable, and there are going to be a, there's going to be a price to pay along the way. There's going to be hurt involved in that. There's going to be pain involved in that. When you've been wronged by somebody and you forgive them, it's not an easy thing. You absorb something. When I forgive somebody, it's not... When I say to somebody, I forgive you, it's not saying what you did doesn't matter and it's no big deal. It's saying I'm willing to absorb the pain and the cost of your, egreg- egreg- um, of your sin against me. I'm willing to absorb the cost of that and to wipe it away for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what forgiveness is. It costs something. It's sacrificial. It's self-giving. 
Hey, hey uh, would you put that, that list back up there for me, JP? Jesus said it this way. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you. And he ramps it up by one final thought. He ramps it up by one final thought. He says this. He says, how you do with this one command, how you do, is going to be the primary distinguishing mark of whether you belong to me or you don't. How about that? By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. If you love one another like that list just showed, if you love with that kind of a love toward one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. Hey, put up the John chapter 17 right underneath that for me, JP, if you would. Compare these two, where he says in another context that they may, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father that, that all of us might be one. And he says that, I'm praying that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that what might happen? The world may believe that you've sent me. There are two things at stake when it comes to whether or not we live out this commandment to love one another. And there are two very serious things. Two very serious things in these two texts. The primary way the world will have to evaluate whether or not you belong to Jesus or not is whether or not you love one another. And the second thing that we're told here is the primary way that the lost world who's watching the church of Jesus Christ will know to believe that Jesus has come from God and that Christianity is true hinges on whether or not believers will love one another. That's what's at stake. That's what's at stake in the relationship between me and you. That's what's at stake in the relationship between you and each other. Husband and wife, Christian husband and wife, that's what's, on, that's, what's, that's what's at stake in the relationship between the two of you. The world is watching, and they're looking to see if you love one another in the way that the Bible defines love. And, and that is their sole criteria that the Lord has given them to evaluate, first of all, whether or not you belong to him, and second, whether or not Christianity is true. That's heavy. That's a heavy thing right there. So it's no, it's no little thing, the way I speak to you and the way you speak to me. It's no little thing. It's no little thing the way I treat you or the attitude I display toward you and the attitude you display toward me. That's no little thing. It's telling the world whether Jesus is real or not. It's telling the world whether we belong to him or not. It's no little thing by my actions whether I love you or whether I'm selfish. That's no little thing. It's a big thing. It tells the world whether Jesus is real or not, whether Christianity is viable or not, and whether or not we belong to it. Francis Schaeffer says it this way, The church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. How then is the dying culture going to consider us? Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. Listen, that's big. The world is looking at you, and they're looking at me. They're looking at how we relate to each other in the context of the church. They're looking at how we relate in the context of our homes. They're looking at how we relate to one another in the context of every environment that we're around one another with. And they're evaluating whether or not we're Christians and whether or not Jesus is truly from God and Christianity is true. And their evaluation hinges on whether or not we love one another whether we're patient with one another, whether we're kind to one another, whether we bear with one another, whether we uh, are, are humble in, in, with one another, whether or not we're, we're selfless with one another, whether or not we're easily provoked with one another, whether or not we're people who hold grudges against one another, whether or not we're the kind of people who speak unkind things about one another. They're evaluating all of that and deciding whether or not we're Christian. Their evaluation may or may not be true. It doesn't matter. The point is, that's the way they evaluate. That's why Francis Schaeffer calls this the final apologetic for the world to see. Our final argument for Jesus Christ to the world shows up. Not in an argument about 
theology or doctrine. It shows up in how we love each other. Did you know that? We will never argue the world into the kingdom of God. Never will. The primary distinguishing mark of a Christian in the world is loving one another. The primary distinguishing mark of me as a naval soldier, soldier, naval sailor, it's not how I talk, the uniform that I wear identifies me as belonging to the United States Navy. The haircut tells you a little bit about it too. But as Christians, we don't have a special uniform. We don't get a special haircut. We don't have a special thing, handshake, or something that tells the world we're Christians. The primary distinguishing mark for us as believers in a lost world is not a fish on our car. It's not a cross around our neck. It's not a T-shirt with a Spurgeon quote. It's not how much theology we know, how much Bible we've memorized, how, many, how often we go to church, how well we speak the Christian language, how well we can debate our theology. The primary distinguishing mark of whether or not we're a Christian is do we love one another as Christ loved us? Do you love one another? Do you love other people like that? If we're evaluating the way you speak to other believers, just imagine we're the world right now and we're looking at your life and we're listening to how you speak to other people and we're, li- we're watching, observing the attitudes that you display toward other believers. We're watching the kind of actions you take toward others. Do we conclude that's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we conclude Jesus Christ is real and he's made a difference in that man or woman's life? If we're the lost world and we're standing back and we're looking at your marriage and your home, the way you speak to one another as husband and wife, the way you speak to your children, the way that you, the attitudes that you display in that context, the context, the actions that you take toward one another, not what you feel, but what you actually do. What do we conclude? Do we conclude that's Christians? Those are Christians there. Do we conclude Jesus Christ is real? He's changed these people. And I can see it by how they love one another. Is that what people would conclude? If not, then right now as you close your eyes and bow your head is a great opportunity for you to go before the Lord in all honesty. In all honesty. In dealing with this area of love in your life. Just quietly there where you sit. How does this how does this apply in your life? You know, I don't know where I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what's happening in your home. I don't know what's going on in the way you deal with other people. I have no clue about those things. But you know what? The Lord Jesus Christ knows those things. He knows them and the world around you knows them. And there's no need to hide from it this morning. Remember, we talked about Judas. Sin hides in the darkness. Don't let this sin hide in the darkness. Expose it this morning. If there's a place in your life where love needs to be different, it needs to look different, where it needs to act different, then right this moment, where you are, as if there's nobody else in this room, you just deal with the Lord Jesus Christ and confess that lovelessness. Confess it to Him. Lord Jesus, I don't love you. I don't love, I don't love like I should. People are watching me. They are not going to see that I'm a Christian. People are watching how I talk to my wife. They're watching how I treat my children. They're watching how I deal with other Christians in business and other people in general. They are not going to conclude that you're real and that Christianity is viable and that I belong to you. Confess that before the Lord right now. You do that. You deal with it. Seek His forgiveness and seek the power of the Holy Spirit to help you in this area of your life. Because the only way you can love like Jesus loved is to have the power of the Holy Spirit in you. That means if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, it's, it's utterly hopeless. You'll never love anyone like Jesus has loved. You can't. You simply can't. If that's you this morning, confess your sin before the Lord. Repent and turn toward the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, we come before you this morning dealing with an area that is hard. It's hard. It is hard for us to love like you love. We are not like you in so many ways. We deal with a sinful, fallen flesh that corrupts our mind. It corrupts our actions. It corrupts the way we talk. And everything that we feel on the inside runs against the grain with how we're supposed to act when it comes to loving other people. 
But we've been given such a visible picture of how you've loved us. You initiated love toward us. Your love wasn't based on how we would respond or whether we deserved it or whether we would act in the way that you have called us to act. No, your love was extended toward us in spite of that and regardless of that. In spite of how we might respond, you gave your son, Father. In spite of how we might respond, Lord Jesus, you walked to the cross intentionally and shed your blood for us. Oh, dear God, make us loving people. Holy Spirit, you must work in our lives for this to be true. You must. We have no hope apart from that. Teach us, O oh Lord, what it is to be patient and kind and to bear with one another. To not be arrogant and rude. To quickly and easily forgive. To be sacrificial toward one another in our, in our love. Oh, change our hearts, O oh Lord. Lord, for as we're thinking about this and praying, Lord, there are people that you're putting in our minds that we've not loved well. Lord, we confess that sin before you this morning. Help us not to leave this place if they're here or to leave this day if they're somewhere else without going and making things right with that person. Are there families right now that need to be transformed by your love? Lord, you can only do this. I can't do it. You can. Husbands that need to love their wives as you've loved them. Wives that need to love their husbands as you've loved them. Parents that need to love their children as you have loved them. Christians who need to love one another as you've loved them. Convict us, Lord, and make this personal in these quiet moments. And drive us to action, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.